Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. A recent edition of Naked Genetics covered a controversial story about genetic data, race, and participant consent. Last year, two whistleblowers were dismissed from the Sanger Institute in Cambridge after their allegations of ethical misconduct. They claimed that the Sanger was planning to commercialise some genetic data into a product called Genotyping Array without permission of the original participants. The majority of those participants were around 5,000 people from rural Uganda and their data was collected in partnership with Ugandan organisations. It's a first-of-its-kind resource of African people's genetics but many of those participants only gave consent for their data to be used to study things like their ancestry. Here's one of the whistleblowers, Deepti Gurdasani. I think it's a huge ethical issue, even above being a legal issue, because there is a lot of helicopter science that happens with African samples. And by that, I mean samples get taken out of Africa or data gets taken out of Africa. African researchers aren't involved. African institutes aren't involved. The communities who contribute to data aren't involved. And the next thing we see is that, you know, there's something published or there's output from that that's very much driven by um, a Western institute. And there is a, a long history of this. In the context of that, we have to be very, very sensitive uh, to what's happened in the past and ensure that, you know, African institutes and African researchers are empowered to lead their own research and to make decisions about what happens with their samples and data. So I think it's, it's a really, really important issue that unfortunately didn't receive enough attention. These are thorny ethical issues. And with me to discuss them are Alexander Massman from the Faculty of Divinity of the University of Cambridge, Kitty Alone here from the Wolf Institute, and Phil Sansom from Naked Genetics. Phil, tell us more. Hi, thanks, Ed. This is a, a tough story, this one. The bare bones of this lie around this question of consent. And this resource of genetic data from Uganda in combination with a couple other sources of data from places like South Africa, have been recently used to put out a couple of different studies that have really changed the way that we thought about genetic variation. They've discovered new ways that variation exists outside of Europe and Asia, and discovered that it's a lot of the things that we thought we knew about certain genetic traits actually aren't universally true. It seems like this quote-unquote commercialization, whether it did or whether it didn't occur, even if 
that was going to occur. It was for the purposes of further research and in to, to improve that research and to make genetics better suited for African populations. This is actually a, a much greater area than I think it, it seems when you first look at it from either point of view, if that makes sense. So, Alexander, what, what issues do, do, does this raise? There are several points that are at stake here. I think that's what makes this whole um, story so fascinating. So on the one hand, we have to see, are there perhaps vulnerable people? So whenever there's a big difference in education, economic resources, we have to ask, are these people perhaps taken advantage of? Can they properly give or withhold informed consent? Further, um, looking at the long term, do you gain and keep the trust of these people so very often medical research would be done for American or European context, but not so much in Central Africa. So it's wonderful that people want to do the science, but we have to preserve the basis on which we're doing that. So if people see, oh, nothing came of it from my data, or a lot more came of it, who knows, hypothetically, that may have been commercialization, then they might not be willing to participate in important future research. Of course, there's the question of medical progress, and there's the interest in good science being done. So um, both here in the UK and other places of the world, society has a legitimate interest in good science being done. But even on our societal level, how do we deal with whistleblowers is yet another question. And we see from the contemporary American current events that um, how we do deal with whistleblowers really can have very significant consequences and perhaps even looking a bit more speculatively in the future, what could be the ripple effects if, again, speaking hypothetically, a company got away with breaches of trust, would people take those agreements less seriously? And um, this is a bit of thin ice since we don't know the full facts right here. Speaking hypothetically, but all of these various issues that are at stake here make this so fascinating. Well, let's take one at a time. Let's take the issue of the vulnerable person signing a consent form that he or she may not know what it stands for. I mean, in your research, Kitty, you've, you've dealt with a number of different uh, contexts where people have to sign consent forms for one experiment or another. Yes. So in psychology, we have sort of rather a, a dubious history of ethical experimentation. Um, sort of, I'm here speaking here about the, the Milgram experiment and the Stanford Prison experiment. <laughs> um, so we've certainly got our unpleasant skeletons in our closet, but things have thankfully, improved since the 70s. And um, there are quite stringent ethical procedures and ethical frameworks in place. The thing that I find interesting in this debate that sort of relates to my experiences during my PhD is what you might term this sort of level of deception. It's all very well to say that, oh, could you please sign this form and we'll be taking some samples and it'll be used um, for some research project on, you know, human evolution or human genetics. But the scope of that project is so broad that it could plausibly be used for any kind of subsequent activity. The other thing is, in terms of deception, I think you have to ask yourself, well, is it necessarily, and this doesn't sound very, <laughs> is it necessarily a bad thing to deliberately deceive participants. So certainly within psychology, if you're studying sort of unpleasant behaviours like cheating or some sort of human behaviour that they wouldn't necessarily want to expose, the standard procedure is to sort of deceive the participants. So in my studies, participants would be told at the onset of the study, they'd be given the consent form and they'd be told that the 
essentially the, the remit of the project was to do X, but in reality what we were doing, for example, was sort of tracking their, the degree to which they cheat on task, for example. The British Psychological Society doesn't allow deception at all within their ethical framework, but I think it is actually quite a necessary component of experimentation, specifically within psychology, but um, human genomics is something completely different, and I don't know how deceptive you can be with that kind of experiment. You've both been talking about vulnerable people and deception, and I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it would be easy for us to say, oh, they're living in rural Uganda, they don't understand any of the science. You know, they they didn't understand the consent forms. Um, They were sort of deceived into this stuff. And I don't think that's true, because especially in this area of Uganda, research institutions have been doing uh, disease surveys, mostly, and genetic surveys for a long time, at least a decade. These are African organizations that went out and talked to African people and talked to African uh, tribal leaders and talked to African community leaders and said, you know, do you want to take part in this? And everyone said, yep, we understand what's going on. Great. We'll sign up. This is going to help us treat diseases. We're, we're into this research. Let's go. I think the question then is when they agree to give their genetic data, just like any of us here in the UK might for any sort of genetic study, does it then make it okay for science to go, cool, we've got the data, let's go, we can do what we want, anything in the name of improving research, let's go, let's go, let's go. I think what I was trying to say was not that these people in Uganda were being deceived, but just that how explicit do you need to be in experimentation about what your research is actually about. If it will constrain the research practice or constrain the research to be completely open is it not better to sort of couch it perhaps sometimes in more sort of nuanced or vague language? You, t- you tell me. Well, I don't know, Phil. This is the thing. But um, I, what I found really interesting was, so I was surfing the web yesterday. Oh, and, uh, Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a miracle. And um, <laughs> so in 1990, the Supreme Court of California, there was a case of Moore versus Regents of the University of California. And this was to do with something quite similar. It was sort of people protesting about the use of their genetic material and how it could be commercialised. And the Supreme Court of California ruled that a person's discarded tissue and cells are not their property and can be commercialised, which I think raises really interesting questions about do you own your own DNA once it's extracted from your body? Alexander, yeah. I'm looking at you. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) You're a theologian. Because my instinct, by the way, is absolutely not. That's crazy. Well, in a, in a sense, it is crazy, given that, at least hypothetically, you could draw really wide-ranging conclusions from somebody's genetic data. And you, you could wonder, well, what implications does a certain genetic information have for, say, insurance purposes or employment situations or so? If, if a certain person shows a certain risk factor for some disease, an insurer or who knows, perhaps an employer might really look at it, look at this person much differently, even if ultimately it turns out that you can't make any firm conclusions drawn from those uh, genetic data. Uh, So I think that is one key area where um, that ruling seems really troubling to me. You're listening to Naked Reflections and with me are Kitty Alone, Alexander Massman, and Phil Sansom. And we're discussing genetic information sharing and privacy. But there's a potential racial element to this, Kate. Let me play you a clip from another Naked Reflections podcast 
in which James Simpkins, Pembroke undergraduate and access officer for the African Caribbean Society, addresses the question of the Benin statues on show at Jesus College. Previously, when the statues were taken, the view on colonialism is, you know, it's, it's, you know, a human right in a way, like you have the right to conquer and, you know, take down. In today's society, we, can't, we view that as wrong. It's stealing, it's killing, it's, you know, it's invasion. To, I, I guess it's a, it's a positive move to go back on that, to show that this is how far we've come as a society. We don't need to steal from each other. We can respect each other's cultures and, you know, return possessions. It, it, it was someone's possession, to put it, to put it one way. So I think it's a, it was a really positive move of Jesus to take the statue out from where it was and reconsider where it should be. So James brings out some of these questions for the Benin statues, but I think there's a relevance here. We're talking in the heart of Africa, in rural Uganda. Is there a sort of colonial, imperialist, racial dimension to our conversation? Is this something that concerns us? I don't think there's any explicit racism going on here, if that makes sense. And I definitely wouldn't put that on the Sanger Institute. I think they've done a really good job in in starting to diversify genetics for the very first time. But I think that you're probably right that... I guess the question is, would this have happened if the people had been in uh, Gloucester? Or rural Indiana. Yeah, exactly. And I just don't know. You know, a a dimension of this is that at least the whistleblowers are claiming that the African partners in this study or in this series of studies weren't fully informed about what the Sanger was planning to do. And that's part of the ethical issue that they raise. And it certainly seems that to a certain extent, these partner organizations weren't fully informed. And I just wonder whether there's a a perception among organizations here in the UK or in the USA or somewhere that you know, they're so far away, they're in Africa, they don't have the power to protest if they're not fully informed. It doesn't matter as much? Yeah, certainly there's this unhappy colonial history in which uh, European powers have gone into um, contexts far away in Africa and Asia, other places, and simply disposed of things, and oftentimes in the name of science, in the name of progress. And of course, we're typically um, convinced that, yes, we're doing the right thing because science is on our side, um, but we might not have um, a bit of a broader perspective there, um, disposing of people's rights. On the other hand, of course, um, there is a legitimate concern that research be done in those communities, um, and further twist to the old story could be, um, does this standard genetics research even do justice to all the cultural factors in play there? Because, for example, if you look at um, uh, a sickle cell anemia or other diseases that are, um, that are often correlated with particular genetic factors common in certain African countries, oftentimes there are traditional lifestyles that mitigate physical consequences but which we don't reflect on in our standard science. So our science that legitimates a lot of these um, potential interventions might not even think far enough. There have been some incipient studies that um, found that um, certain genetic predispositions would have been mitigated or you just don't see the diseases that you would expect because people eat a certain kind of yams, for example. 
Um, there are populations in Brazil that have very high occurrence of these um, EPO, E4 gene variants that seem to correlate with Alzheimer's, familial Alzheimer's that sets on early. And um, you just don't see them having Alzheimer's, perhaps because they do something, they eat a certain diet, etc., that keeps them from having that disease. There's a lot of uncertainty about these questions, but we shouldn't rule out that we're missing something important in the scientific picture there. It doesn't quite fit so nicely with the way we think of genetics, which can be um, operationalized so neatly. You uh, genotype people, you develop um, just a few standard uh, procedures that could apply to everyone. Well, in fact, you would have to uh, narrow things down a lot more to the local, perhaps even individual level, and you might then be able to come up with uh, suggestions for medical conditions that are, that wouldn't just apply across the board. So there is a problem in the way we do science. I, I, think, sorry. I, I think part of that problem initially came out of just a practical consideration. Because genetics is one of the most statistically complicated types of science there is. He and says proudly. He <laughs> says, no, I don't understand it at all. It's a complete mystery to me. But... It, when it, when people were first starting to get into this field, they were initially making a lot of wrong calls because genetics is so complicated and every person has different genes. And so to, to try and avoid making those wrong calls, they said, OK, let's look at as many people who are as similar as possible so that we can be sure that the thing that we're seeing is different here isn't just different because the people come from different places. We've moved beyond that a little bit now in that we have the, the knowledge of genetics and the statistical tools to say, oh, we can deal with people from different places. But that legacy of, you know, let's keep things simple to not get it wrong is still there. And I think that might be part of the problem that you refer to, Alexander, and it's part of the reason that genetic data is so exclusively white at the moment. Mm. Kitty, are there, are there echoes of the sort of early period of psychological studies? in terms of the uncertainty of, of, of a new field, the complexity? Because it seems to me it's not a, 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 not a unique phenomenon. It's easy to critique early science or sort of dismiss or scoff at, you know, scientific endeavours that were done 50 years ago. But science doesn't get it right. The process of science means that you, you make errors along the way, you learn from it, you refine it. Um, so I don't think it's it's... It's not necessarily in everybody's best interest to just kind of scream down past attempts at um, at experiments or particular strands of science, because I think we are at the place where we are now because we've learned from mistakes that we've made in the past. Well, just to relate the two, does psychology have that racial bias, sort of the 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 racist dimension from past research? And is there any? Oh yeah, of absolutely. That? So there's. Um, what they call um, so a guy called Joe Henrik and um, and colleagues developed this idea of the weird population. So that's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So the majority of studies are done on basically sort of Yale undergraduates, and massive conclusions are being drawn about you know humanity at large on the basis of what is extremely atypical sample of humanity. So in many ways we're at the same stage in in as in genetics research is that we are now sort of looking to do much more cross-cultural psychology um, to really try and atone or make up for the um the areas that severely lack which is sort of insights into populations around the world humanity at large and that's what this research is aiming to do it's exactly that it's to atone for that whiteness 
by diversifying yeah. the data that exists. Uh, what are the limits to the human intervention in, 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 in this area of genetics and genetic research? Well, so there, there are different um, questions that you can ask. Would genetic interventions be made um, just to inform people, to help them adjust their lifestyles? So this would be something interesting that people in Uganda could perhaps uh, get out of those chips. Um, but of course, you could also ask, um, might there be um, risk factors that could be treated with a specific medical intervention? You might also wonder, well, um, might the genome be modified, say, in a grown person, in a baby? There have been um, uh, um, therapies, say, against uh, leukemia. Of, um, people have been healed of leukemia as um, young toddlers, really wonderful research. And then finally, you'd go into the question, should parents be able to have an embryo modified genetically, which is widely uh, prohibited legally in most Western countries, certainly. <clears throat> and then again, this is all the entire medical area. Another question would be, could you improve, so to speak, characteristics that are not pathological? Um, could we tweak intelligence a little bit? A lot of this is very futuristic. I'm not convinced that it'll be uh, feasible anytime soon, uh, but still um, we should uh, think about those issues. It raises questions of of, of eugenics, doesn't it? And, oh, and yeah. sort of the echoes of, um, of, of the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, eugenics is a big history. Um, of course, uh, Nazi Germany being the big example that sticks out. But even beyond that, in Britain, there have been influential eugenics societies who, of course, still exist but reflect critically on their past. Um, in the US, there have been many, many forced sterilizations of people who were thought to have genetic predispositions for criminality, etc. Um, I think the one fact that I found most shocking about this history was, for example, that in Nazi Germany, it wasn't necessarily only the iron hand of the state that forced people, say, to kill people with disability. Um, very often, it was relatives who had the chance to save their family members um, and who said, well, um, we're not going to. Oftentimes, um, there was no contact anymore. Can I quickly respond to something from a little while back that Kitty said? I think you raised a really important point about who owns what when it comes to genetics in your body. And the Sanger uh, has traditionally been the pioneers of making this stuff open access and non-patented, right? When they were first involved in sequencing the first human genome, all the genetic code inside a person, it was a sort of race between this international consortium at which the Sanger was one of the, the leading companies and uh, a private organization led by Dr. Craig Venter. And uh, Craig Venter was extremely quick and managed to patent uh, at the time. He actually patented some of the genes and sequences of genetic code that he and his team discovered. And he said, well, now we own the patent to this. We control all commercial products relating to this. Any, any uh, Looking at this section of genetic code, any treatment, that's under our intellectual property. Which is crazy, right? Because most people would have that section of genes in their body. And suddenly that doesn't belong to you anymore. And so the Sanger were part of this consortium that managed to argue in court, no, this isn't legal. 
we can't have our excuse me we can't have a world where people patent genes and i think it's interesting here that they potentially allegedly were going to use this new information these new gene sequences from people in uganda and people in south africa as the basis for creating a supposedly commercial product which originally would have just been sold to them but then might have been sold elsewhere and they'd receive a royalty fee is that verging into that territory of patenting genes and and turning them into commercial products or is it just you know allowing capitalism to to enable better research there's something intuitively off about this sort of the whole Sanger fiasco or whatever you want, the whole Sanger episode, something doesn't sit right in terms of its ethicality and its morality. And I think it is this sort of really shady intersection between capitalism, commerciality, or commercial, com- commercialization, and the principles of good science. Um, and it also raises questions for me about. Like, the, are there any kind of statutes of limitations on how long you can keep somebody's genetic material? So, amazingly and handily, for the purpose of this podcast, my housemate, as a baby, was involved in a, um, a study as part of a Cambridge University um, research project that took various sort of blood samples and <clears throat> things like that. Wow. Um, so this was over 30 years ago. Um, he obviously didn't give any consent because he was a baby, but his parents must have, I presume sort of given some kind of um, consent but he still gets researchers sort of 30 years later asking if he can be called back into studies and he was sort of sat there this morning as I was telling him about this podcast and he suddenly went who is looking at my data because it can't be the same research project it can't be the same researchers 30 years on as it just been sat in a big database that everybody's looking at are they going to sell my information and so it's interesting for me because that's somebody who didn't give informed consent because the nature of the study was on, on infants um so it's just yes this idea of well how long does the, the the consent last is it sort of once you give it it just lasts forever or is there a time period where it's only to the end of the the research project but gen- genetics is part of this big data movement. It's the way it's going. There's these huge resources of genetic data that are getting built up. Alexander, I'm sure you know a lot about this, stuff like the UK Biobank and uh, other biobanks across the world, which are just gathering people's genomes and genetic code and correlating it with their height and weight and all these other factors in their bloodstream and all these other biological things going on. And any researcher can apply to that resource, say, I want to use it for this study. And uh, the resource goes... Sure, that's what we're for. We're enabling research. You can gather this on your own. This is an incredible data set. Do your thing. A lot of good can come from those efforts, I think. So I just talked to a researcher in psychiatry here in Cambridge the other day who said they're looking at genetic markers or predispositions for mental illness. Um, And um, it could be really helpful if there is medical progress um, enabled by these studies. So you need to look at a large number of people, see what genetic characteristics they share and with what sort of health characteristics that correlates. Um, it's important, though, not to um, uh, rush it to uh, any firm conclusions too quickly because um, if you end up with 100 genetic markers for a certain illness or so, 
that really doesn't help you anything. Um, perhaps you're onto something that has, say, 0.5% of influence on the ultimate characteristic there. Um, or perhaps it doesn't have any influence, or perhaps the genetic predisposition only has an effect together with lifestyle choices and environmental influences. Uh, so it's easy to overestimate this, but um, presumably it has to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, going back to the question of patents, perhaps, um, I think there's still a lot in flux there. So um, the U.S. is the powerhouse of genetic research internationally, and um, the Supreme Court had ruled um, six years ago that um, patents would not be um, uh, possible. <clears throat> and before that, um, thousands of patent applications had been made. Um, so, but the Supreme Court said it's a product of nature. You can't um, commercialize that in such an exclusive way. Um, in the EU, by contrast, under certain conditions, patents are possible. Um, so that would need to be on our minds for future debates. I thought about this, and I so sort of ethically complex, and I just think, well, what would I... But basically, if I had given my DNA voluntarily for a study, and it was to sort of understand markers of disease in or the evolution of humanity, I would be very happy to do that. If I found out that my data was being used to develop a commercial product that somebody in Silicon Valley would sort of profit from, then I would be furious. That's just my... So is, is there an absolute ethical line then in... You know, I don't want my genetic data used for anything, no matter how much I think it might benefit <laughs> me, no matter how much it might. For me personally, if it's of benefit to society at large or to science, then absolutely that's great. But if it's for someone's company profit or gain, then I would have a problem with that. And what if it's both? Wow, that's a really difficult question, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I think we've reached the grey zone and I'm going to bring this podcast to a close. There's plenty for future reflections. Thanks to my guests, Alexander Massman, Kitty Alone and Phil Sanson. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. And Naked Genetics. Is it? Yeah, subscribe to Naked Genetics, everyone. We're on iTunes. We're on all your podcast platforms. We're part of the big Naked, Naked Scientist family. Do join us next time. Bye.